Consider for a moment the level of intention and thought that folks put behind finding a job. Is it the right fit? Will I be challenged? Can I succeed? Will I love this job? It's an important decision. It's one of the biggest life decisions you make. You should invest that kind of time and energy. Why then not make that same investment in leaving your job? It has been my experience, both in the for-profit and the nonprofit sector, that people tend to stay in their jobs too long. Inertia, complacency, maybe they just keep loving their job. Maybe all of the above. In the nonprofit sector, there is this added dimension of leadership. An executive director carries a mantle, the chief champion for a cause, the public face. It's expected. And I have found that the longer someone holds the leadership baton, the more identified the organization becomes with that individual, and that can be a challenge to the sustainability of the organization. Not an issue solely with founders, by the way. As more baby boomers step out of their leadership roles after long tenures, an executive recruiter friend of mine calls this cohort the long and strong, I wanted to explore this, get inside the head of a leader in the process of stepping down after a long and successful tenure. I picked up my smart smartphone and I started to scroll. When I saw my guest's name, I knew because this story is her story. And then I smiled. She's a friend who makes me smile. She'll make you smile too. Welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. Not enough money, too many cooks, and abundance of passion. Leading nonprofits isn't easy. Joan Gary, author, blogger, and founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab gets it. She is here to help. Kate Kendall leads the National Center for Lesbian Rights, a national legal organization founded in 1997. It advances the civil and human rights of LGBTQ people and their families. Kate will be stepping down from her position in five months after a 22-year tenure as the organization's executive director. Kate grew up Mormon in Utah and received her JD degree from the University of Utah College of Law in 1988. After a few years as a corporate attorney, she was named the first staff attorney of the ACLU of Utah. During her tenure at NCLR, the organization has won custody and family law cases, achieved victories on behalf of LGBT athletes, won protections for LGBTQ students and elders, and secured asylum for over 300 clients. NCLR was a lead on the California marriage equality case in 2008, and later part of the team of attorneys to secure national marriage equality in the 2015 U.S. Supreme Court case Obergefell versus Hodges. During Kate's tenure, NCLR's budget has grown from $500,000 to more than $5 million. The number of staff members has increased by 25, and the organization now has both West and East Coast offices in San Francisco and Washington, D.C. Kate lives in San Francisco with her wife, Sandy. They have two kids, Julian, who's 22, and Ariana, who is 16. Kate, first off, thank you so much for the gift of your service and letting me poke and prod on the topic of knowing when it's time to leave and getting it right. Well, Joan, I am happy to be in this conversation uh, with you of all people. You know that you are one of my very favorites, always have been, always will be, so it's a delight to be here. I didn't pay Kate Kendall to say that. Okay, now, I would actually like to go back and start in 1996. Here you are, an internal candidate for the position of executive director. You've already been there a few years. Did you aspire to be an ED? Was the gig of being an executive director at NCLR, was it a dream gig for you? It actually was not. When, the, uh, when my predecessor, uh, Liz Hendrickson, left NCLR, I was legal director. I had been hired in 1994 to be legal director. I loved being the legal director and 
developing the law and the vision and the strategy around the law. Shannon Minter was at NCLR at the time and is now now our legal director. And he and I worked very closely together. Uh, and the position I was in after Liz left was interim executive director. But I made clear to the board I was not interested in being the executive director. I wanted to be the legal director. I wanted to do the law. I didn't want to have to deal with all the stuff an executive director has to deal with. But really, after six months in the job of interim, I found myself thinking multiple times, wait, um, I could do this. And as we were searching <laughs> for a permanent executive director, no one was really clicking. So the board asked me again, would I do it? And at this point, I was aspiring to be the executive director and did see it as something of a dream job, but I, but I didn't start out that way. So when you took the helm, did you have any thoughts? So first of all, you, you weren't even thinking you wanted to be an executive director, so perhaps this question is moot, but did you think about how long you might stay? Yes, I actually did. Our budget was 500000 at the time, and I remember saying to myself, okay, well, when we hit a million, that's when that's when I'll that's when I'll leave. And and what was the what was the what was the magic about the million? It just seemed like a completely artificial but comforting <laughs> artifice to put in place for me to feel like then I could make my exit. And of course, what happened is we hit a million a lot faster than I thought we were going to. And and I wasn't ready to go. So that was the last time I put in place some artificial trigger for me making the decision to leave, which of course we now all know how that ended. It was, you know, 20 years more of service as the leader of NCLR before I, uh, I announced that I was stepping down. Well, it's also interesting too, that you picked a financial number as opposed to an, some kind of measure of impact. Well, I think that goes to that. I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't, I'd never been in an ED before. I didn't understand exactly what went into the job. I didn't know how long it took to really hit full competence when you were, you know, you're really firing on all cylinders and you know what you're doing. Um, and it just, it felt like a sort of safe thing. And it was the only thing that I knew. I knew that ED was supposed to fundraise and make money for the organization and keep the organization <laughs> solvent and financially strong. But um, but I was I, I was I was naive about both how much goes into the job, and I think I was particularly naive about how much I was going to enjoy the job. Yeah, I I'm always conscious when I work with clients of them focusing too much on the financial goal, even though we always talk about money equaling programs. But that, you know, success is not necessarily measured by how much money you have in your coffers, but by how much good work you do, which clearly you had, um, you have a long, rich history now of a docket of work that has, that now sort of really speaks for itself. But it's, it's an interesting thing to think about the driver as money, the driver as impact. You couldn't have, you couldn't have known then, gee, I'll leave when we've won X number of cases, right? It doesn't work that way. Yeah, it. Yeah. So, so having um, been a colleague of yours when I was at GLAD, um, I speak from a lot of experience at leading a civil rights organization, one in which your visibility often leads to hate mail, one where you go toe to toe in all forms of media with people who see you as less than, that <clears throat> these jobs are really, 
really hard. Um, what has sustained you over this time? I do not think the job is really, really hard. I, I think <laughs> the job is uh, challenging and relentlessly challenging. Uh, there's never, there was never a moment where, even in 22 years, where I felt like, wow, I've, I've mastered this. There was always more that I could have done or things that I could have done better. But I, I, I never felt the things that some people say they feel that, you know, they're very isolating jobs um, or that they're, um, you know, particularly difficult. I, I was so, I always felt so lucky to be in that position. I mean, as you said about the bio, I mean, I grew up Mormon in Utah. I was the first to go to college in my family. I came from a very, my father was very anti-intellectual, kind of mocked the idea that I wanted to pursue college and then law school. And so I never imagined that I would be in a job I really loved and certainly never imagined I would be in a job that actually was like help pushing the levers of liberation of a community that I was working for. And, and so the overwhelming feel I had day in and day out was just an enormous sense of, of privilege and humility that, that I got to be in this role. And, and I do think, I, I really do believe looking back, I don't know that I could have said this in the middle of it, that that framing for me actually made the job not feel overly onerous or lonely. I, I feel like I had tremendous support from my staff, from my board, from the community. And, and I think that orientation, you know, coming into the job with a sense of gratitude uh, and possibility uh, rather than this is going to be a total pain <laughs> is can I help get through tougher times? I don't think uh, my role was any harder or easier than any other executive director of an organization, but but I do think I do think I had a lot of support and a lot of people who bet on me, and I think that that made it possible for me to to really sip, to really enjoy and lean into what I loved about the job and got through some of the stuff that was harder. I could not agree with you more. I did not find my tenure at Glad to be hard. When I got hate mail, it made me want to work harder. For the communities that I represented or served or led. Um, and I find that in my speaking gigs that the picture, the slide that they take the most pictures of of my PowerPoint presentation is what I call the sort of the secret sauce of nonprofit leadership is that there's actually a joy to being the leader of an organization to get paid to make a difference, um, that it's a privilege and you're absolutely right, is to rather than see all of those people around you as sort of a varying, <laughs> varying cohorts of mosquitoes that are like pecking you, right? Your donors, the anti-gay folks, your board, but rather to see them as a village and build them that way, it actually reduces isolation and increases the sense of joy and gratitude, don't you think? I completely agree with that. And, and the joy thing, I think is key. I, I key. I always think about, and I think this is to some degree was, you know, maybe true of my dad. Think of how many people go to jobs that, that give them nothing back except the paycheck. And even that sometimes is far less than what they have to put up with. Most people, uh, particularly in this country, I think, 
work in jobs that that are not particularly fulfilling and they certainly wouldn't describe them as as bringing them joy so right. if you get that chance it, it it's a really privileged position and and i feel like being able to make a difference on issues that you care about in a community that you are part of and that you love that is such a unique and and special experience um, coming at it with that sense of joy does make, I mean, not, not that there won't be really difficult moments and we all have had those, but it, uh, it, it, you leaven, if you leaven those, that diff, those difficult moments with that joy, you can get through them, I think much easier. And I certainly feel like that happened for me. I, um, I bet you've had this experience working a room, um, <clears throat> at a fundraiser, and I would constantly say, you know, well, you know what I do for a living. I, you're a glad fundraiser. What do you do? And people would say, and I would inevitably, my next question was, do you enjoy it? And I'm going to tell you 75% of the time people would say, no, not really. And they would follow it with, you're really lucky because you clearly love your job. To which I would always say, because I am a graduate of the School of Snappy Retorts, um, actually, I'm not lucky. I, I actually applied for this job. <laughs> Um, you know, that <laughs> you have to go out and get those things that help you to live a life that makes you feel like you're making a difference. Well, so and, and the, yeah, go ahead. I'll just say the thing about those, that, those fundraisers, it's actually those folks that I feel like are the most loyal donors and supporters, because what, what you're giving them is an opportunity to, to take some of that paycheck at a job that they don't really enjoy and invest it in an organization whose leader they trust and whose leader they admire as stepping into like that joy of the job and doing really important work. So, you know, there is a, if there is a synergy there between folks who may not be able to, may not have jobs like these, but when we step into these jobs with that sense of wonder and joy and awe and gratitude, I feel like it makes it, I think donor investment comes with that kind of attitude when you approach these jobs that way. Because they're essentially invitations to those folks to play on this team, right? Yep, exactly. Yep. Exactly. And so, to be part of it. Yep. Were there parts, uh, so points along the way that you can remember, like big ones, where you stopped and said, maybe this is the time I should think about going? Yeah. I, and this is where it became, it had nothing to do with our budget or numbers, but it really did become about, you know, at key inflection moments. And I remember the first one that really, where I really thought seriously about whether now was the time to go was when we won marriage in California. As you noted, NCLR was lead counsel on the marriage case in California. Winning that in 2008 really felt like, man, this is huge. And this is, this is the harbinger for winning nationally because California is just so huge and, uh, and has influence. And that was 2008. And then of course, six months after we won marriage in California, it was taken away at the ballot box by prop eight. And, and there was no opportunity. I mean, I wasn't going to leave if prop eight was on the ballot. And then when prop eight passed, I did not want to leave then, even though there was huge ridicule of me and other uh, leaders of organizations who had stepped forward to fight Prop 8. 
I don't think there's anything the campaign could have done differently, even though I have a critique that the campaign should have done some things differently to win and to defeat Prop 8. But we were pilloried. And I didn't want to leave then because I didn't want to leave from a, I didn't want to be hounded out of the position. And I didn't want to leave from what felt like a, a, a weak and battered place when I'd had so much joy in the job. I, want, I wanted that back, but it took a while to get it back. And then by that time, we're in the middle of the national marriage fight and, uh, and winning that. And it just, it, I, I never felt like after we won marriage nationwide, I didn't want to leave then because I didn't want to signal that I thought that was the only issue that mattered because there were so many other issues that NCLR works on beyond marriage. And, and so I had been thinking about it for many years and, and finally in the last year, 18 months or so, you know, I really felt like as I hit 58, that I, I needed for the organization and for me to just call it and say, this has been amazing. And it really just became a function more of my chronological age than anything that I felt like it's, it's in the best interest of this organization in particularly this moment where so much is fraught and uncertain to have a new leader with some different vision to navigate these very treacherous waters. You don't necessarily need a long tenured person to figure this out. You may actually need that new person with a different vision. So it finally just became it's time. And there was no particular incident that triggered it other than other than father time clanging in my ear. Right. Um, do you think that so there's there's pros and cons of staying in a job for 22 years? Uh, you have a history, uh, you have a gravitas with your community. Um, the flip side is we live in a very different kind of world. Um, new voice, and I, I, when I left Glad, I, I felt like it was time for there to be a fresh voice, perhaps someone truthfully, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't as old then as I, I am now, amazingly enough, Kate. And um, I just felt like, social media was going to start to take off in this big way. And that I wasn't necessarily the right person to look at things more innovatively that I had gotten it where it needed to go for that time, for what I was able to bring to it. Um, and I think that that, you know, that's something that everybody has to sort of grapple with. So, uh, so what I'm hearing you say is that there was, it just became sort of an organic, yeah, this is about the right time. Um, is, was that the core of the decision-making process? It did become more organic than a particular incident. And it really was about, I want to do one more big thing. I feel like I need to do that before I hit 60. And I do not feel like it is in NCLR's interest as uh, as a nonprofit relying on donor support to be led by uh, a leader uh, post 60 and also, you know, a leader um, who is white. I, I, I don't know who the next leader of NCLR will be, but I do think issues of, of race and LGBTQ people, issues of structural racism in this country and how leadership uh, is in the movement and in the country generally, I, I really feel like we, if I don't vacate that chair 
and make room for someone with a different life experience, um, a different way of seeing the world. Uh, I don't make it possible for NCLR to be as innovative as I think the organization is going to need to be. So it really came down to this is good for me to leave at this point, and it's good for the organization. And I, I really believe that, and I believe it even more strongly now than when I announced uh, back in March. We are having a conversation about longstanding executive directors making a decision to move on, and we're talking with Kate Kendall, the executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights. So let's talk about your planning. There's a lot of planning that goes into leaving. And I know that in your 22 years, you've seen a lot of folks in the nonprofit sector come and go, some for short tenures, others like you, long and strong. So you're thinking about all of these, the plans you have to make, the people who have to know, the messaging, all of that. Um, Were there lessons that you learned from watching others that you incorporated into your planning process? And then you could just lead right into some of the key elements of your planning process. This is such an important question. And I absolutely learned a huge amount from both observing leaders who left and then now going through my own process. And my key advice would be, do not do this alone and give yourself, I would say at least a year runway. Your board should know first, your board leadership should know, have conversations with them. Um, and then we brought on with the generosity from the Haas Junior Fund because they do this these flexible leadership awards. They're all about really intentional leadership in organizations, including exiting organizations. So they give us a grant. I, I love the flexible leadership program is one of my very, very favorite programs of a foundation. They provide grants to their existing grantees to strengthen them. You apply for them. I don't, I, I, I'm, I, every time I meet with a foundation, I say, do you know about that flexible leadership program at Haas? You should do something like that. It's so true. It helped me be a better leader while I was still firmly in that seat. And they provided support for us to hire a succession planning consultant. So this is someone who's helped organizations go through succession planning. And and she developed a written plan in consultation with my management team and with board leadership. The hardest thing was that my management team and the board had to hold this information you know, pretty big thing, you know, for a period of several months before we could tell anybody. And that's just going to have to be the way it is, because there are things that people need to know and get in place. And then by the time we announced it to staff, which was in um, late February, early March, I think, uh, we were all really ready to go. But it was six months of very intentional meetings, planning, conference calls, to get the plan in place. So you have to kind of back it out. And once you make a decision, then talk with the board, then bring on the people you need, then figure out what the rollout is for announcing and who you call and who you talk to. And obviously before I announced, I spent you know three days on the phone calling people who needed to hear it from me rather than hear it publicly. And then you roll it out. And I do not feel like looking back that we could have done it any better in terms of the rollout of the announcement 
And that was because we had done months and months of pre-planning. And that is really worth investing in because if the rollout looks good and thoughtful, that in and of itself uh, makes your donors feel a level of comfort that the organization's gonna be okay, even though a long tenured person is stepping down. And boy, oh boy, listening to your story, this is a story actually about your board. How many nonprofit leaders can trust their boards to keep a lid on something confidential, whether it be a staff hiring or firing, let alone the exit of a long and strong executive director. Uh, this is why I spent so much time focusing on build board building and making sure you have the strongest possible board. But the fact that you could, that that board held on to that information for six months is nearly in the world of nonprofit boards, nearly miraculous. I, I hear that. And in fact, a couple of board members said that after it was announced, some of their friends were like, wait, we just had dinner last week and you didn't say anything, you know? So it, I agree with you. It's, it's really hard for boards to do that. And I think what, what the reason my board was able to do that is they realized that the transition and the higher and the future success of NCLR was on them. I'd be gone. And knowing that that was going to sit in their lap, I think made them understand. And the succession planning consultant did really emphasize this. If you get this wrong out of the gate because you can't hold this information uh, confidential, that is going to infect the entire process. And that is going to be on you all. And I think you know it was like under penalty of torture that they would have held on to this information because they knew that a moment's um, gossiping about you know some juicy piece of information that somebody might care about in a fleeting way was going to imperil a much more important process down the road. There are so many things to tease out about what you just said, Kate, and uh, I find often that really strong, successful executive directors can sometimes um, create a disengaged board because they'll just sit there and say, hey, Kate has this. And it is the biggest challenge in a transition because they're fundamentally more disengaged and slightly weaker. I see this all the time. And I've, I've been known to say that Really good boards occasionally make bad decisions. Weak boards always make them. Yeah, boy. And I remember being at my temple, and we had a, a rabbi, our rabbi was leaving after 35 years. And I watched at, high, at the High Holy Day service. I watched the power in the shul shift over from our rabbi to our board president. And he grabbed it with such integrity and with such reverence that you could feel it throughout the congregation and that that's the way the board of our congregation has handled this transition and we hired, we hired a total rock star. So that notion of the power shifting to the board is something that I don't think boards quite always get. And I bet your consultant was pretty key there. I think that's right. I think what we, how we approach this, and I think this is the framing that 
you really need to have is really from this sense of um, both humility and with the board, separate and apart from me, that they they are entrusted with a very, very valuable community asset in the National Center for Lesbian Rights and and our impact and what we do and what we contribute and how we are regarded and what we've achieved and won can all hang in the balance if they get this wrong. And, and so there really was this sense that it wasn't, it wasn't about, oh, let's do what Kate says, or let's make sure, you know, Kate has the exit that she wants, or let's take care of any individual staff person. It was really this really kind of sacred duty to sort of bring in maybe another little sort of thread of spirituality that we hold something very dear and fragile, really fragile. And, and so it is, it is incumbent upon us as the board to take the advice of people who know how to do this and to do this with all the integrity and all the honor we possibly can. And, and I really feel like that, Understanding that, I think I don't think anybody was even tempted to leak this information early because weighed against that kind of sacred responsibility, there's like no contest, uh, and and it, and and so it worked. And I do feel like as it's rolled out, has been as good as I've ever seen, and from my experience of it as the outgoing leader, I have I have been so well held through the process that I, I can't imagine how it could have gone any better. You gave a really long notice. Um, can you talk about that and what you see as the pros and cons for NCLR? I mean, I, from the outside looking in, it seemed long to me. It is long. And it, and it wasn't originally going to be that long. I was originally going to announce in June or July uh, take a sabbatical. I have several sabbaticals banked, but and take a, it was kind of a strategic sabbatical. Take a sabbatical in July or August and September, rather, just so the staff gets used to Kate's announced and now she's gone, but she is coming back for the fall to do our major fall fundraising because, of course, as most nonprofits, we raise the bulk of our budget in the last quarter of the year. We moved forward really only for one key reason. And that was because our anniversary gala is in May. And we did not want, as we started to really think about it, we did not want to have that gala with no announcement about this. And then just a few weeks later, I'm announcing I'm leaving and have all the donors who really do have this, they invest in us and they trust us, find out just a few weeks later when they were just in a big room all together and said, well, how come nobody said anything? So the consultant really pushed us to think about backing it up. So it did mean that I announced in March. So my development team would have enough time to plan the gala around my, the fact that I was leaving. And then we have the rest of the year. It's longer than we had initially planned or than I would have wanted, but oh my gosh, it was totally worth it. And it made our big gala, which is our single biggest fundraiser of the year, much more successful than it's ever been. And it created this, it created an opportunity for people to say goodbye in a really public way. And for me to say goodbye in a really public way, that was exactly the right thing. And boy, from a heart perspective, it just, it felt so perfect, but yeah, it's a long goodbye for sure. (laughs) 
So um, another question for you, the big challenge of the successful, long-tenured leader who's a really good, charismatic fundraiser. And a little bit of that at GLAD, uh, people became identified quite strongly with me. Sort of, I'm sure you have heard it. I give money to NCLR because I trust and respect you. What steps are you taking to ameliorate that? Do you feel like you've done enough in your tenure to build an organization that is not entirely the Kate Kendall show? So the way I think about it is that a great leader is like Jim Henson and his Muppet Babies. That, like each of the Muppet Babies have a unique personality, bring something really important to the table, and are front and center in the world Jim Henson has created. And so I always, I always talk to my clients and say, you want to kind of be Jim Henson. You don't want to be like the, the Jim Henson show. And so I wonder if you feel like you've done enough in your tenure to build that sort of notion of, you know, sort of institutionalizing relationships. Do you wish you had done more? And what are you doing between now and the time you leave to do even more? I think I could have done more over the course of the last two or three years, although quite intentionally we were doing more uh, to have particularly donors and uh, funders, foundation funders and individual donors and corporate donors have connections to other people in the organization. There's definitely a much more intentional plan between now and the end of the year to pass off some of those relationships. But I'll take the gala as an example. So we're in a room of 2,000 people. These are some of NCLR's most loyal and supportive donors and long, long time investors in our work, along with a lot of corporate supporters in that room. And I really made my speech be about that what they've invested in is not me. It is this work. And then I give examples. It's, it's these people. It's so-and-so doing this. It's this case that won this. It's, it's this work that is changing this for young people like giving tons of examples and making clear that my role, my role has been to be the number one cheerleader and fan of this work. There will be a new number one cheerleader and fan, but that work and what you most care about, the change that we've made, that's not going to, that's not going anywhere. And so I feel like we're already making a lot of those messages. And I've had several, like more than several, a number of, of donors reach out specifically, or as I'm in conversation with them, say, Kate, you know, my support for NCLR is not going anywhere. I care so much about what the organization does. And yes, I appreciate your leadership. So I, I feel like we're, I feel like we're a little bit behind where I want to be in terms of transferring all those relationships, but we're already well on our way to that happening, but it has to happen in a very intentional way. And you have to say it out loud to donors I know that you've supported my leadership. I'm asking you to please continue to support the organization because that work is so important and it needs to continue. So I want to ask a couple of questions before we leave. Got it. Many organizations um, have a really difficult time with a transition after a leader steps down for two years. Sometimes we have what we call the transitional girlfriend or boyfriend who is not that other person, is never going to be that other person. People can't get used to it. But maybe that's not what you worry about. I just wonder, what is it as you think about stepping away from the organization, what do you worry about? The process we're going to use here at NCLR is uh, to hire an interim 
executive director who's not intended to be, nor do they want to be the permanent executive director, and then launch the search after the first of the year for a permanent executive director. I do think an interim executive director helps to sort of break the link between donors and the outgoing leader. Uh, And they don't attach expectations to that interim leader because they know that person's just there temporarily. So I do think that that will probably help a little bit with that. You know, I suppose my biggest worry is I think what every long tenured leader walking away from an organization has, I want the organization to thrive and I want the organization to surpass even my expectations of what I could have accomplished if I had stayed. I, I really, I, I am confident of my, in my tenure and what I contributed, but I would love nothing more than three or four years from now, or maybe even sooner for there to be a little bit of, well, wow, I, Kate's been gone that long. I didn't even, I kind of forgot. <laughs> and they're, because NCLR is doing such amazing things. And so financially strong and so innovative and light on its feet and doing such important work. I, I really want a day when it's, if not exactly Kate who it's a, wow, the organization is amazing with this new leader. And my worry is that that won't happen. And I want to do everything I can to make sure it does happen because my legacy is NCLR exceeding what I could have done for it. Yeah, but how much power do you have to do? What, what is doing everything you can to ensure that that happens? I, this is one of the things I worry about on behalf of people who leave and on behalf of boards who feel so, feel that the organization is so connected to you. So I have seen so many board members try to hang on to dear life, hang on for dear life to their leader on offer for board service and honorary role. Um, in some ways, like, so I rejected all of those things out of hand immediately to allow my successor to have all the run room he needed to be successful or not. And it was hard for me to sit completely on the sidelines, except for continuing to be a donor, because I had so much invested, it was so much part of my identity. And you, you were, you know, I was seven or eight years, you're 22. So how do you do that? Like, so I, so I guess there's two questions in that, Kate. One is, is the, is the board smart enough to know that you've got to step away enough to allow the new leader the run room that, um, that he or she will need? And is it going to be hard to sit on the sidelines or are you planning not to? I'm definitely going to be on the sidelines. I think it is, it is not, I don't want to be anywhere near uh, any position of influence because I do not feel like that sets the next leader of the organization up for the success that I know they should have need to have and deserve. It'll, I think it will be, it will be hard to be, on the sidelines only because I so love being in the mix. I don't feel like it will be hard in the sense that, oh, I would do that differently or I could do that better. I I want to be the number one evangelist for the organization and what we're doing and my team and, and the staff. 
And that is a role I will continue to play from, from a much greater distance. And there's a point at which I just have to know I, I don't have control. And I'm sure there will be moments where I have to sit on my hands because I so want to be involved in some way or say something or pick up the phone and give advice. But, um, but I, I really, I am confident. I really do feel good about where the organization is and where our donors and supporters are in understanding that the vital work that we do will continue unabated without one hiccup only if they continue their support of the organization, uh, regardless of my stepping down. And, and I really feel like getting that bargain and so far no one has ever said no to that bargain is going to be the key. And, and my hope is to just be, is to be cheerleading from the sidelines, even though there are moments that I'm going to want to wish that I was sitting at that desk. So I, I want to play back to you something you just said, is that you want to be the number one evangelist for the organization. And I would just add a friendly amendment that if I were hired to replace you, and I am, if, if you think you're old, I'm even older, so I am not a candidate for that job. But uh, I wouldn't want to hear you say you are the number one evangelist. I would want to say, want you to say to me, you are the number one evangelist, Joan, and I am here to evangelize from the sidelines and do whatever it is you need to set you up for success. I totally accept that friendly amendment. See, I'm still learning. I'm still learning exactly the role I'll need to be in. So I'm not there yet, but uh, but yeah, amendment accepted and understood. Okay. All right, good, you may step down. Uh, only one further question. Um, so you're a really good CEO. Clearly you've proven that. Is there one more CEO gig in your future as we close things out, talking here with Kate Kendall, the executive, uh, the executive director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights, who's been talking with us about knowing when it's time to leave after a 22-year tenure, how to set the organization up for success, how to engage your board so that they understand the power shifts to them. So last question, is there another CEO job in, in, in your future? I, I can't imagine there aren't some people that think a 58-year-old CEO would be just fine. Thank you very much, given your track record. I am not interested in being a CEO again. Uh, I've had the best gig that one could possibly have in that role. But what I do want to do is I want to scale what I've learned. I want to scale what I've learned about leadership, about inclusion, about effective organizations, about the most intentional kind of leader. And I want to scale that for other people uh, to be able to step into the kind of power and joy in these jobs that is possible. And I want to do that for other folks. Well, I can speak from some experience and tell you that there are a lot of folks that are anxious and hungry for exactly that kind of counsel and advice. So um, that's being on the field in a different way, isn't it? It is. It is. And wouldn't it be something if instead of just me being an executive or you, as you were, doing what you're doing, though, and making 10 other people more effective and, and, and more into their role and more filled with joy and enthusiasm about their role than they would have otherwise been. That's impact. Yeah, it is. I totally agree with you, Kate, and you and I have talked about this, is that the ability to leverage our experience to help, to help others become more effective, to recognize the privilege and joy of service, 
to be champions for them, to cattle prod for them, um, to provide them with tactical and real advice on how to build boards, all of that sort of thing. Um, I never thought that I would enjoy or get as much joy and privilege out of a job after I left GLAD. But when you can leverage it and amplify it, like, like for example, like we're doing on this podcast today, Kate, um, speaking of amplifying, it's incredibly rewarding and more importantly, ridiculously important considering the uncertainty and brokenness of our current world. Amen. Could not agree more. And, and thanks for uh, leaving some breadcrumbs that I can follow as I, uh, as I try to emulate some of what you've been doing, Joan, in this iteration of the Joan Gary that we all know. <laughs> the Joan Gary Muppet Baby Show. Yeah. Awesome. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, Kate, thank you so much for sharing the story. I hope that our listeners and we, you know, we have folks who are board members and staff members, development directors. I hope you're really thinking about this because what's happening at NCLR is um, it's smart. It is also indicative of an epidemic of um, boomers who are retiring to try to think about that one last gig. And boards and staffs really have to be so intentional about the choices that they make in making those transitions. So I hope you have found this helpful. Kate, I really appreciate your sharing time with, with us. It is very early on the West Coast for you this morning. But I hear you have a gym date with that ridiculously adorable daughter of yours. I do. And it's been a pleasure, Joan. And yeah, now we're going to go pump some iron. <laughs> Wait a minute. How old is Ariana? 16. She pumps iron at 16? 16, yeah. You know what? She's always been a bit of a firebrand. So why should this surprise me? Yeah, 16, Again. 16 going on 23. Apple not falling far from tree. <laughs> um, so with that, we're going to leave you. Uh, speaking of which, many of you I always imagine are on an elliptical machine or driving to work while you are listening to us. I hope you have found this to be helpful. Um, just a couple of quick things. In addition to my podcast, which now has about 65 episodes on a variety of topics, I think people find quite valuable and helpful. You can find it on iTunes or on my blog at joangary.com. You can subscribe to our weekly email at joangary.com. It's either a blog post or a podcast. Often we include uh, downloadable templates to help you be more effective in your job. And stay tuned as the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, which is our online subscription membership site for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits, gets ready to reopen its registration this fall. Be on the lookout for information about that. But you can learn everything you need to know about what that content and community is like if you join us over at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. And until next time, thank you, as always, for the good work you do. Enjoy the privilege, the responsibility, and the joy of your work. Take care. Joan Gary's obsession with supporting your work takes many forms. Subscribe to her blog at joangary.com, reaching over 100,000 visitors monthly from over 170 countries. Explore the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, the best online resource for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits at nonprofitleadershiplab.com. Join 15,000 kindred spirits on Facebook at Thriving Nonprofit with Joan Gary.